I have been given the impossible task of discussing the role of women. And I really enjoy knowing who I'm speaking to, so I want to ask you a favor. I'd like to find out where you're at and where you're going. So what I'd like to do is, as I ask you to stand concerning your goal in life or your direction, please do so at the appropriate time. If you are headed toward a business career, would you please stand just for a moment as a college student? Just stand and remain standing. Look around and take a look at these people, okay, real quick. You don't have to clap for them. Just look at them. Okay, thank you. You may be seated. How about those of you headed for the pastor-teacher role? Anybody here? Great. Thank you. You may be seated. How about athletes? Anybody going to seek to go into athletics? Would you please stand? Come on, guys, stand. (laughs) Good, thank you. What about uh, those of you going into an artist area? Artist? Any artists here? Great. Good. We could use some. Okay, thank you. What about scientists? Any technical engineers, scientist types? All right. How about missionaries? Any missionaries here? Good. Very good. Okay, how about any wives and mothers? It's a very intimidating thing for those ladies to stand up, and yet I really believe that they've found something that may help them for the rest of their lives, the rest of their single lives. It's true. You know, what is the difference between a rooster and a patriot and an old maid? A rooster says cock-a-doodle-doo, a patriot says yankee-doodle-doo, and an old maid says any doodle-doo. When you talk about the role of women, I think we can identify with that. I mean, picture this, guys. You're on a Dutch treat date, and you walk the girl up to the door, and she says to you, well, since our whole night has been Dutch treat, uh, you can just kiss yourself goodnight. (laughs) It's not only the intimidation of walking up to the door, but the whole physical relationship is a problem. Take the young farmer who was standing at the doorstep with his gal, and he says, Oh, look at the cow and the calf rubbing noses in the pasture. That sight makes me want to do the same thing. And the girl says, Well, go ahead. It's your cow. <laughs> I think I'd go bury myself. <laughs> at the turn of the century, the world's most distinguished astronomer was certain that there were canals on Mars. His name was Sir Percival Lowell. And he had heard that another Italian astronomer had found lines crisscrossing the Martian surface. And so he spent the rest of his days peering through a giant telescope in Arizona, mapping the canals that he found on that red planet. He was convinced that those canals were proof of intelligent life, perhaps an older and wiser race than humanity. And if you remember the radio show, The War of the Worlds, that was the context in which came out of that. It was after Sir Percival Lowe's discovery that the world felt that there was more intelligent life on Mars. And his observations gained wide acceptance since he was so highly respected. He was the number one man as far as astronomy was concerned during his time. But what was strange about his research 
is that we know today after probes have circled the planet and actually landed on Mars that there is not one single canal on Mars. And the question that modern astronomy has asked is how did Lowell see so much that wasn't there? Could have been that he desired to see it there and so the desire was so great that he saw it there. Well, that could be, but the better explanation is we know now that Lowell suffered from a rare eye disease. And that eye disease basically caused him to see, as he looked in the intensity of of a microscope, his own bulging veins of the back of his eyeball. And so all the canals that he mapped on Mars were actually the veins of his own eye. He projected his own weakness onto the planet Mars. But what Dr. Lowell did about 100 years ago by projecting and seeing his own illness as truth happens all the time today. Especially when one examines the role of women, especially single women. It seems that every group that has a voice today is continually projecting their fallen weakness onto the role of women. Consider the world of high fashion for a moment. It tells us, and you ladies I'm sure feel this in some way, that to be accepted you must be beautiful. You must look like a fashion model. And since fashion models represent less than 1% of the women in our country, this causes a great deal of us, uh, you gals, to feel quite anxious and quite depressed at times. Do you not? And it also generates billions of dollars of cosmetic and clothing industry. Take the women's liberation, the feminist movement. It projects the unisex ideal onto the role of women, where a man can be effeminate and stay home and care for the children, and a woman can be aggressively tough and is encouraged to do construction jobs. Basically, what they want to do, and this is their express goal, is to get rid of any difference, not just equal rights for equal pay. They want to get rid of all distinction between man and woman. And that causes many women today to be confused as to what they are to be and what they are to do. Taking the unisex philosophy to the ultimate limit, the gay-lesbian movement loudly, consistently, and confidently says that there really isn't any true male and there isn't really any true female. In fact, the only way that you can really measure what your identity is is they develop two new criteria, whether you're gay or straight. And if you fit in those criteria, that can tell you really what you belong to, but male and female really don't make any difference at all. Add to that false, fallen image the fact that about 50% of the marriages in the United States end in divorce, projecting an image of failure to marriage and heartbreak and confusion to children who are trying to figure out what a man and a woman is supposed to be. No wonder most collegians can't figure out what they're supposed to become. It's a crisis today. And it's no surprise that many are confused and even rebellious to what a real man and a real woman is supposed to be. That's why it's essential for us as Christians not to imitate the distorted projections of people's fallenness. Recently, eminent theologian, contemporary scholar, and sociological expert, Cindy Lauper, the orange-headed rock singer, said that in an interview that the three biggest oppressors of women, catch this, the three biggest oppressors of women are, number one, the government, number two, the family, and number three, 
the church. What's interesting about her statement is that unknowingly, Lopper exposes whose side she on. She's exposing what side she has taken up with since she has now criticized, by criticizing the church, the family and government, all three of God's ordained institutions. Isn't that interesting? You see, as a Christian, we must realize that the role of women is not just a cultural issue. The role of women is not a political issue. The role of women is not a sociological or a sexist issue. The role of women is a biblical issue. It is God who made male. I know that's basic. Don't let me insult your intelligence. It is God who made male, not Playgirl magazine. It is God who made female, not Playboy magazine. And it is essential that we see what he has designed for each individual sex. Otherwise, we might find ourselves constantly confused and competing with the opposite sex. You ever find yourself in that boat? Like the little girl who asked her daddy, Did God make you daddy? To which he said, Yes. Then she took a long, hard look in a mirror, and she said, Did, did God make me daddy? To which he replied, Of course, dear. And then after a little thought, she said, God sure seems to be doing better work lately. (laughs) If you find yourself wondering why I can't do what the other sex does, competing, comparing, and in some way frustrated with your role, what you've got to understand is what the Bible says about the role and goal for women. What I'd like you to do is open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. The answer is to find the biblical role for women. And really, I believe that Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 are some of the best character qualities that you can find for the young single woman today. And not only that, I think it would be appropriate to even call it God's goals for women. What God wants from you. Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Let's read it together talking about the older women, that they may encourage the young women in a discipleship relationship to do these following things, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Now, before we cover this passage, we've got to lay some groundwork. You see, the big problem with examining the role of women and this particular passage is not discovering what it means. What it means is really basic. But what we've got to do is to determine how it applies to each of you now. I mean, there is not a single woman, I believe, in this room that doesn't have some problem with the exhortations that I just read in Titus chapter 2. I mean, even if you hardly agree with those qualities that God lays out for women... You've got to find someone to try it out on, right? That's a problem. Others here may wonder if God wouldn't be more pleased with them if they would give themselves to ministry full-time and become a missionary and just forget the typical stereotype of the role of women. Others here wonder if God wouldn't be more pleased if they would just kind of consider these exhortations as just cultural and they don't really apply to today's single women. Others might wonder how they can possibly apply this now while they're going to school and pursuing a career. Think for a moment. 
What is a single woman to do today? What is a single woman to do today, especially if she wants to someday be married and be in a right biblical relationship with a man? If she waits... Now, I want guys to pay attention to this, okay? Help you identify with the gals who are sitting all around of you. If she waits, she's labeled as desperate. Isn't that true? If she gets a low-paying part-time job so she can wait for her man to show up, and in two years when he hasn't checked in, not only is she going to be poor, but she's going to end up hating her job and everybody else there. And some of you know that's true. If she prepares for homemaking by reading all the wife and mother books, she gets frustrated and depressed because she's not able to apply the principles she's learning. If she wants to be content and she works at it, it still doesn't stop her family and friends from asking her five times a week, how come you're not married yet? Been there? If she pursues ministry, then she wonders if she'll become so spiritual that she'll intimidate all the men around her. That's happened. Or will she be so out of circulation she'll never get a date? I mean, what is a woman to do? Can you identify with that, ladies? It is a tough position to be a single woman in our particular society today. Therefore, with all those questions, the issue really goes beyond Titus chapter 2. And so this morning, I want to lay some groundwork. I want to talk about the biblical pattern for women, and I want to do it two ways. Really quickly, I'd like to survey the scripture, and I'm going to survey it really fast. And so it's going to kind of be like a Bible bowl this morning. You're going to have to turn your pages real fast. And then what I'd like to do is I'd like to wrap up our time by looking at a sheet that some guys have, and I'll ask them to pass it around pretty soon, that we can kind of go through and apply the principles that we find in scripture to the young single woman. In other words, what do you do now, even though these principles really relate to the married woman? We find that in scripture. So let's start at the beginning, all right? Let's start at the foundation. Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. The overall teaching of Scripture is that men and women are equal beings before the Lord. Catch that, guys. Equal beings before the Lord. But they differ generally in the responsibilities and in the role relationship that God has given them. Basically, in the Old Testament, we see both women's equality of being and submission in responsibility. Both the aspect of being equal before God and yet also the role relationship of being submissive. Look at Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now what you see there is that both men and women are created in the image of God. Neither received more of God's image than the other. Both man and woman, God gave the command to multiply and subdue the earth and rule over its animal life. Now look at chapter 2, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. This is kind of an expletive of the sixth day of creation, chapter 2, kind of showing what God did during that sixth day. And verse 18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. And all the men said, Amen. And I will make him a helper suitable for him. 
The word helper there means a helper like him, a helper suited to him, worthy of him, corresponding to him. Then you'll see in verses 19 and 20 that God showed the animals to Adam to expose his need. There would be many animals that he would see that would help him. There would be many animals that would even serve him. But there would be no animals that could be his life companion. No animals that could be his soulmate. And so you see in verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept and he took one of his ribs, literally part of his side, and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman from the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, literally, Chukilala. Literally in the Hebrew text, it's wow. That's exactly what it is. When he saw her in all his innocence, he went, Yowza. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here's the purpose. Verse 24. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were innocent. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's before the fall. God created Adam. And for a short time, he was the only human being on earth. And in pronouncing Adam's aloneness and being not good, God emphasized the need to create a partner suitable for him. One corresponding to him, God's second human creation was Eve. And she was brought forth from Adam's body, not independently as he was. Now, what's the point? The purpose of woman's creation was for who? Was for man. She was to be a helper for him. The woman was created to be suitable for the man, not vice versa. By the way, what time of day was Adam born? Anybody know? A little before Eve. I'm sorry, that's my Genesis joke. (laughs) Look at Genesis 3. Look at Genesis 3.16. While the woman was created to be a helper to the man and thus submit to her his leadership, Eve took the lead from the serpent's temptation and made a crucial choice without even consulting him. And I want to add a little footnote to that statement. Men, it says in the Bible that it was Adam who transgressed the covenant. If you want to look for a great deal of where the responsibility of the fall lays, it lays on man. Because mankind, even though Eve was pulled away, Adam still could have taken leadership in that relationship. And he chose to fall and chose to fall against knowledge. The main problem, I believe, in the male-female relationship today is that men aren't doing what God has called them to do. I just want to say that. We'll get to that later when we talk about the role of men. After the fall, look at verse 16. Of Genesis 3 to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth In pain. You shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Her desire because of the fall will be to rule over her husband. And yet he has been given place and rule over her. Now, the interesting thing that you've got to note here is that many people today who want to mutilate the Bible will say that Genesis 3 is where the role relationship came from. And now in Jesus Christ, there's that equal equality in the role relationship. 
But the reason I shared with you Genesis 2 is because the fact that before the fall, there was the role relationship. You see, in Genesis 2, submission of the woman was already present in creation. The woman was created for the purpose of being a helper to the man. And when Paul in the New Testament teaches submission of wives in the family and submission of wives in the church, he uses the creation account of Genesis 2 to prove his point. In other words, the fall is not the cause of the role relationship. It's the created order. The fall only accentuates the need for proper role relationship. Well, if that's what God designed at the foundation and at the beginning, then how does it affect all of the other relationships that a woman finds herself in? And this is where we're going to do the Bible bowl, okay? Ephesians 5.18, actually Ephesians 5.22, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Basically what that means is that a woman is to voluntarily submit herself to a man. Men do not force women to submit to them. Men, drive that into your brains, would you? Being a husband does not mean that you are King Supremus Maximus. That you are not the absolute sovereign in the home and every wish and whim she will crawl on her face to make it happen. But you know, that's why a great deal of the ERA and the women's movement have taken place because men have abused their role. Women are to voluntarily submit themselves to men. It is their command from God to submit themselves to the men. There is never a command in Scripture for a man to make his woman submit to him. Nowhere. Colossians 3.18 says that wives be subject to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. And basically what that says in the Greek text is that the submission of a wife to her husband is legally binding. As we say in our own college department at Grace, it is not an option. Now please note, submission does not apply superiority. And it does not imply inferiority, that women are inferior to men. I think one of the best ways to view the role relationship between a husband and a wife is like to see it as a great play. You've seen a great play that has two great actors of equal skill, talent, capacity, and abilities, but one plays the lead role and the other plays the supportive role. When they work in harmony, each committed to their own part with excellence, the play is applauded. It is, it is seen as a triumph. But if they compete and either tries to dominate or smother the other, upstaging the other, there are boos of disapproval. And it's the same with the man and the woman, the husband and the wife. They perform different roles that complement and they complete and they create harmony if both do what God has called them to do. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says this, Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of every woman and God is the head of Christ. Let me read that again. Listen to it. Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. You know what that text is saying? Even in the Godhood, even in the divine trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, there is submission at work. You see, all three persons of the trinity are all equal they're all equally God. Would you not agree? But each plays a different role. Where the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ submit to God the Father. Jesus Christ submits to God the Father. And yet they're all equal. And Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11 the fact 
of this submission in the Trinity to correct the Corinthian church and specifically the Corinthian women because of an abuse of the submissive role that they would dishonor God. You see, authority and submission is found not only in the Trinity, it's found in government, it's found everywhere. It's God's principle. So we shouldn't fight it. Without going verse by verse, basically the problem there was the Corinthian women just didn't understand that that is what God had laid out for them. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9-15, through 15, and I want you to turn to this one. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9-15, through 15, you'll understand that not only does God's, God's role for the women affect her relationship with her husband, affect her relationship with worship, but also affects her ministry. And 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15 addresses that. 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. In verses 9 and 10, it talks about the woman's appearance demonstrates her submission. Something to meditate on. And then in verse 11, it says, Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Again, this is talking about public formal worship. And in public formal worship, a woman is to receive instruction. She is to learn. She is to remain quiet. She is not to teach and she is not to exercise authority over men. And that's verse 12. Now, why? What is Paul's reasoning? Verses 13 and 14 say because of creation and because of the fall. I just want you to feel and sense current theology today says that the woman's role is based on a cultural issue. I want you to know that this text totally wipes out that theory because the role of the women right here is based on the creative account. That is not a cultural issue. That is a fact to the first century. It is not limited to a problem in the Ephesus church. It's based on creation. So then what's a woman to do? Verse 15. But a woman shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. He's not saying that salvation comes from bearing children. Otherwise, many of you here are in deep trouble. What he's saying is that he's exhorting women in public worship to learn and not to teach, to be silent, not to speak out, not with a rebellious spirit, but with a submissive one. And basically in formal public worship here, he's talking about that the woman is not to be in the authoritative role. She is not to be the pastor teacher. And finally, this text also demonstrates what a woman is to be as it relates to her home relationship. And basically, she is to be a worker in the home. A worker in the home. The focus of her attention is going to be in the home. Why? So it can be her prison? No, because the home will be her priority. See, a woman's greatest impact for the kingdom of God will be her influence in the lives of her children. Bottom line. That's why Paul says to Timothy that motherhood will be her salvation. She will impact the kingdom from the bottom up and and not the top down. That's why when you look at television and you watch a football game and the big giant football player comes up on the screen, he says what? Hi, Mom. Where's the influence been felt? Mom. Well, if her submission involves every aspect of a woman's role, then what does it mean to the single woman? Guys, I'd like you to take some time to pass out those sheets right now, if you would. And I'd like to kind of go through a very practical application this morning. I want you to know that as we go through this, that there's so much more to say. There's so many proof texts to look at. All we've done is taken a really brief survey. But what I'd like to do is to take the remainder of our time this morning and apply what these principles mean. And again, to identify with you that if you're a single woman, how can you be a husband of, you know, how can you be someone who loves your husband? How can you love your children? You don't even have any. How can you be a worker at home when you don't even have a home to be a worker in? 
And I want, I want you to understand the biblical exhortations. I want you to understand what the Bible has to say and how it applies to you right now. And I want you to go through this with me. I know that this is not good preaching to read this, but I want to read it through and then make some comments with you. Take a look at number one, the biblical application there. Men and women are equal before God, yet have different God-given roles and responsibilities. I want you to know that that initial statement goes totally contrary to where our society is heading, and it's only going to get worse. Therefore, to be a Christian, you're going to have to fight against the current tide and the current influence of our society just to be a godly woman. Understand that, women. Just to be a normal, godly Christian woman, you're going to have to fight your world in order to accomplish that. Number two there, the second statement, both men and women are equally responsible to pursue and glorify God individually as the highest priority as well as central in every priority. Jesus Christ is your goal, not a husband and not a wife. The number one main focus of your life as a Christian is Jesus Christ, face-to-face with Him, communing with Him, fellowshipping with Him, carrying on a relationship with Him. It is not the pursuit of a husband. It is not the pursuit of a wife as a single person. Number three, except for the celibate, the most fulfilling God-given role of a woman is that of a wife and mother. Now that may grate against some of you, but I want you to know that every passage that we just looked at points to that very fact. The most fulfilling God-given role for you, apart from the few celibates that might be present here, is the role of a wife and mother. If I can say something just as kind of an appendix. You know, you guys, you men, when a gal makes a statement in a class or stands up in a chapel and she says that she wants to be a wife and a mother and you laugh, that's one of the worst things that you could possibly do. If anything, you men... When a woman comes up or in a group setting or in a discussion says, I would love nothing more than to be a wife and a mother, you ought to praise God and praise her because that's exactly what God wants for them. There is nothing worse than single men who walk around and start making fun of women who want to fulfill what God wants them to do. Are you guilty of that? take a note on the celibacy there are three reasons for celibacy because some of you may be saying to yourself that you are a celibate let's find out there are congenital reasons you're born a celibate physically castration you're made a celibate physically or commitment to god you choose to be a celibate you choose to have no sexual relationships though capable of such now concerning commitment celibacy and you can study this passage on your own first corinthians 7 1 through 7 Celibacy is good. It has advantages for the kingdom. Celibacy is tempting. It opens oneself up for great temptation. And celibacy is a gift. It is for few sovereignly given. You do not choose to be a celibate. God chooses you to be a celibate. It doesn't make one more spiritual. Understand that. The people who believe that became monks. And its purpose is for greater physical sacrifice for the kingdom. Now, how do you know if you're a celibate? Basically, I believe, this is my personal belief, 
You can choose to believe whatever you wish. I believe that the text here emphasizes these points. Letter A, you have no desire for marriage or children. You have no physical sexual temptation. In other words, no burning, no out-of-control burning. Letter C, you have the ability to give oneself totally and selflessly to ministry, which means that there's no distraction. Now, married couples can give themselves to ministry, but they do have a distraction, and the distraction is their husband and wife, and that's biblically accurate. And it's sovereign circumstances. In other words, if you find yourself in a situation and you're 50 years old and you haven't been married yet, you might be a celibate. Number four, if you're not a celibate, and for women, the best guess is that 3 to 15% are celibate, depending on where you're at, then a young single woman will live out in our culture in a state of tension until married because of four reasons. In other words, you single women in this room right now are going to struggle right now in this particular stage of your life. There's going to be great tension. For some of you, it'll be more intense. For others of you, you've learned by the Spirit of God to begin to deal with this and control it. Let me give you the four reasons. They're listed there on your outline. Letter A, no physical authority. Now understand this. In biblical times, in most cases, young women went from subjection to a father to subjection to a husband with no period in between. And today, there's a large gap in between. The reason that the Bible does not really address the single women is because in biblical times, when a daughter would get married, she would leave the home and go into her husband's home, and that was it. There was no stage in between. You see, and today, if you see on that second chart on Modern Times for Women, we have subjection to your father, and then there's kind of a a quasi-adolescent period, and then there's a gap where you're in your career, your school, your ministry, and you're not submissive to any one singular man. And that creates a tension. God did not make you for that. Do you understand that? God created you for the role of submission, and that's why He designed it so you'd be in submission to your father and then submission to your husband. And our culture works against that. That's why there's a state of tension. That's why there's a problem. Letter B, number two. The second reason why you live in a state of tension is that basically today's single woman has had little biblical patterning which to follow so as to know God's design for the woman's role. About 1% would say that their mom or dad truly lived out the biblical pattern for a woman and a man. About 1%. Now, I bet you in this crowd, that's a little bit higher percent because some of you come from some great Christian homes and you ought to praise God for that. But those of you who have not, you haven't had that modeling. And one of the disadvantages of even being at a Christian college is that sometimes you're not as involved maybe in the body of Christ as you should be. And so you're not really modeling after Christian couples or families and you're not being able to see that kind of modeling and example. So many of you have not spent any time with a couple that has children to see what it's like to be a Christian mother. To see what it's like to fill out your role so you don't know, so you live in a state of tension. Letter C. Thirdly, no specific time frame. The single woman cannot know when being a wife and a mother will be a reality. Therefore, what is she to do until marriage, let alone boyfriend, let alone boy-friend, let alone date? You know, she doesn't know when she's going to have a relationship with a man, and so therefore, in our culture, she lives in a state of tension. Letter D, satanic pressure. All of our society is pressed for money, fame, career, independence, dominance, and role reversal. Everything in our society is working against the biblical role of women. Everything. And that creates a state of tension. Now, number five in our outline, possible solutions for the state of tension. What can we do about it? Letter A, criticize the single man that you, do, that you know for not dating. That happens a lot. 
how come the men don't date? I hate to say this, but I'm going to anyway. Men, how come you don't date? There's all kinds of godly women sitting all around you. What are you looking for? All women are in process. There is no perfect Proverbs 31 women. Get with it, guys. It falls on you in our particular society to date these gals. And I'm not even saying in a formal relationship. Just go out and have a good time. Learn what it's like to be around a woman. You know, some of you guys learn, need to learn some manners. Every time you go out with a gal, you burp, you don't get her door. You know, your attitude of a woman is you grab her head and you give her nookies, you know. Come on, guys. Understand the process. In our society, the way that you learn how to be a husband before you're married is you spend time with women. Get it in there. Forget the stereotypes. Now, you girls could help a lot by not wearing your wedding dress every time a guy asks you out. Okay? <laughs> but understand the truth, guys, that they're not, if they're going to fulfill their God-given role, they are not going to call you up and ask you out. They're stuck. And if you guys are going to, yup, yup, yo, do, 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 all they're going to do is be frustrated. Golly. I am not trying to provide some sort of dating service, okay? I'm just saying that, guys, look, this is the time of your life in order to do that, to build friendships. And I mean friendships. I'm not talking about relationships. Don't jump into a relationship and then try and roll backwards and say, oh, we're just friends, we're just friends, you know, and you don't even know her. Build a friendship. Go out on gang dates. Get three guys together and go take five girls out. And two of you can have two. <laughs> I understand the pressure. I understand the problem. But gals, letter A there, Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You are not to criticize a single man for not dating. I mean, that's a possible solution. It's not the right solution. Letter B, give in to the pressure to pursue the world standard of success. Now you could do that. Letter C, you could ignore the teaching of the word and see the role of the men as equal. Again, the role is not equal. They are equal before God, but the role relationship is not the same. I guess same would be a better word. Letter D, choose to believe that you're a celibate, even though you're not, and pursue a direction not of God, which is very dangerous to you, and, and not only to you, but to the kingdom of God. Letter E, serve God outwardly, but resent Him attitudinally because of the role of submission and priority of the home and family. That happens a lot. And then letter F there, compromise the truth of the Word of God and mix them with worldly humanistic philosophy so you can believe what you want and reject the rest. You know, today that happens all the time. Instead of creation... We mix it with evolution and we have theistic evolution, which is not biblical. It's not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. So we have submission of women. We mix that with liberation and we have biblical feminism, which is not biblical and it's not really feminism. Well, what's the answer? Biblical solution to the state of tension of the young single woman. Letter A. Do all you do to the glory of God. I know that's basic. But at this particular stage in life, as a single woman, do all to the glory of God. Which means you need to evaluate your motives, first of all. Evaluate your motives for going to school. Is it for self? Is it pride? Is it a degree, fame? Or are you coming for evangelism, edification, worship, and development of skills? 
Letter B, what about your career, your job? Is it because of pressure, money, a dominant lifestyle, clothes, car, luxury, or is it evangelism, edification, worship, and development of skills? What are your motives for doing what you do right now during this state of tension? Letter C, ministry. Is it for fame, popularity, importance, or self-sacrificing love to the Savior ministering your spiritual gift? And in everything you do, is it for self or is it for Christ? Evaluate your motives now, single women, and understand... That is to be to the glory of God. Letter B, be thankful for your God-given role as a woman. For some of you, this may be the change of your whole direction of life. Number one, whether you're a celibate or not, whether attitudinally or actionally, or the spoken word, you are to honor the role of a wife and mother and homemaker. As a Christian, as a Christian, if you don't honor the role of a mother, you're acting like Antichrist. You're going totally contrary to what God has for what a woman's to be. Number two, be thankful for singleness as a time to minister unhindered by family responsibilities, but look forward to marriage as a completion of your potential ministry. Learn how to function in the church. And I say that as a pastor to college students who are involved in a great, great university, a great, great college. But I want you to understand that you've got to learn how to function in God's family and then you'll know how to function in the family that God gives you. You need to be around older men and women. You need to be around families, couples with children. You need to experience that. You need to understand where their mentality is, where their priorities are. It's very, very important. If I could plead with you for you to understand the role of a woman, I'd help you to go back to Titus 2 and take a look at verse 4 and understand that God designed that older women should train the younger women to be women. It's a discipleship relationship. And the only way that you can do that is to be around him. I know recently my wife has been very ill. And it's been exciting to see all these college gals take advantage of her illness to come over and just kind of learn from her. I think she's great. I think she's a great wife, a great example, a great model. And I've talked to some of these gals and their lives are changing as a result of just watching a wife and a mother do what a wife and mother does. I would encourage you to do the same. Number three there, if not a celibate, never replace your role as a potential wife and mother with some other career ministry or mission in a long-term sense. What I mean by that is don't shelve the idea of being a wife and a mother by pursuing a career. Don't lock yourself in so bad that you could not get out of that career in order to fulfill being a wife and a mother. That's all that's being said. Number four, seek no direction or goal that would be a detriment to one fulfilling the role of a wife, mother, or homemaker. In other words, don't lock yourself in in such a way as like to go to medical school and to accure such debts that you could never dig your way out. You could never stop doing that. You could never end your career in order to give yourself to a husband and then give yourself to raising your children. Letter C, be a responsible Christian with aggressive faith. Number one, prepare for the role of a wife, mother, and homemaker by watching, learning, and practicing domestic skills. Number two, exercise self-control and weight control, eating healthy, budgeting, and banking. You know what? If you don't learn how to budget and bank now, you're going to really be a detriment to your future family. That goes for your guys, too. Learn how to control money. Learn how to sleep right. Because I guarantee you, when you have a kid, you're not going to sleep right. (laughs) 
Learn how to deal with sexual temptation. Just understand this. Marriage does not cure lust. If that were true, there would be no adultery. You know what cures lust? Self-control. Spirit-controlled self-control. Learn how to deal with it now. Before you get married. Control your emotions concerning a mate. For some of you, it'll be the, the, the greatest thing that you'll have to give up to the Lord is to trust Him for your mate. That's some of you guys as well. And then give yourself the Bible study and prayer. Number three, learn a balance between present ministry, church, school, career, missions, and future ministry, marriage, family, and home. Learn a balance between those two. Number four, learn to maintain proper relationship with your parents. I know that hurts some of you, but that's really key. If you can't submit to them, even though they're non-Christians, if you cannot submit to them, you're not going to submit to your husband to be. Bottom line. Number five, be open to develop friendships with men. And I know some of you are going, I am open, I am open. And at the same time, develop convictions of what a biblical relationship is. I mean, you've got to understand, ladies, that before you walk in a relationship, every guy that you date may not be spirit-filled. Every guy that you go out with, even though he says he's a Christian, may not be. And you've got to be prepared. You've got to draw some standards. You've got to know what you're getting into. And I'm not just talking about in the physical realm. I'm talking about in every realm. I believe that when you go out on a date, you should not talk about everything the first night. Something should be left a year from that time and even longer. You've got to think that through. Same with you men. And men, please get on the ball, would you? Number six. Continue to develop all the qualities of a young woman, which is what we're going to study in Titus chapter 2. Let me conclude with one verse. Psalm 84, 11 and 12. Just listen to it. It says, No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Let's pray. Father, some of the things that have been said this morning have been said in a hurry. And I would pray that you would encourage each one of these men and women to examine your word, to survey your scripture, to find that the things that have been discussed have been true. Father, there are some here who are really struggling with what has been said. Father, it it grates against their whole upbringing. It may even grate against their family life, Father. I would ask that you would help them to be courageous before you to be willing to change. God, give us your mentality. Give us your goals for men and women, not the world's. Give us the understanding to realize that The world has nothing to offer us and only your word and your truth and your life and your son Jesus Christ can offer us true peace, true happiness, true joy. And Father, your ways are the best ways. We thank you for this time and we ask that you would begin to change us even now. And in Christ's name, and all God's children said, Amen.